Psalm 119, 33 through 40. Let's read this together. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Turn now to Exodus chapter 20. I will read this for us, 20, Exodus 20, 1 through 17. Pay attention, please, to the reading of God's holy word. <clears throat> and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Please have your Bibles handy. I will be looking at a few different passages as we go through here. Well, as we think about uh, the law, as we think about uh, studying the Ten Commandments, it's helpful to realize that we've all had the experience of either being the giver or the receiver of rules or standards or laws. 
Maybe you've been a giver as a parent, as a teacher, a coach, or a boss. You've had standards, right? When I coached Little League or coached flag football, we have practice, we have games. Like There's things that you, the kids need to do, right? There's rules that they need to follow, uh, not only just as we practice and get ready, but in the game. And it was my job as a coach to communicate those things. As we think about our, our authority as rule givers or, or law givers, um, ultimately, we are not in ultimate authority, right? Even as parents, we have authority over, over our children, but we are not the ultimate authority in their lives. Uh, there is obviously a very uh, likely chance that we could come up with some rule, right, or some standard in our home that is just arbitrary and maybe like, obviously the kids should follow it because it's our rule, but this, it's not like this rule that we make equates with God's law, right? We are not the ultimate standard bearers. And then as receivers of laws or standards or, or rules, think about all of us have been children, right? Who have been under the authority of our parents and who have received rules and standards. We've all been uh, students, right? And under the authority of our teachers, and we are all citizens, right? We are all under the authority of laws that we need to abide by. And I think we all probably know what it's like in each of those different settings, whether it was as a child or as a student or as a citizen, to buck against some of those laws, right? Well, why do I have to follow that? Why? That doesn't make any sense. And ultimately, that should cause us to think about as humans, we are the recipients of God's law. But the difference here is that God is perfect. His authority in our lives is ultimate, and his law is perfect. So it's helpful for us to think about kind of our human relationships and our human ways that we understand those things. But when we think about it in relation to God, it's totally different, right? There are some analogous things, but it is totally different because God is perfect his authority is ultimate, and his law is always perfect. As we get into this topic, this is a challenging topic. This is a challenging topic just to prepare for, to give an introduction to the Ten Commandments. Uh, it is a massive topic. Uh, there's no way. I mean, we could talk for three hours and not even sufficiently cover all of the different things that we could talk about, all of the different even debates within some Christian camps, right, about how the law applies today. And and we'll be getting into a lot of that as we go through the Ten Commandments this year. Uh, we're not going to even get into like the differences between the moral law and the civil law and the ceremonial law, which is another huge topic. Uh, this series, as we go through, is obviously going to be covering, covering more of the moral law, which the Ten Commandments are. But as we go through this, uh, we need Scripture to be our ultimate guide. Uh, we're not going to just be arbitrary and say... Um, you know, we've, we've got the, we're, we're not going to be pointing ultimately to all these human standards of laws. We're pointing to God's word. Scripture will be our ultimate guide. But we are also going to look as another resource primarily at the Westminster Larger Catechism to help guide our teaching through the Ten Commandments. And I, did we get, everyone's got a copy of this? They were on the back. Okay, so keep this. Um, we'll have more of them if you, if you don't bring it, if you forget it in a month, which you probably will. Um, we'll have more. And you can leave it on the back if you want when you leave. But I wanted to point out to us here, and I think this is really helpful, as we, as we look at the Westminster Larger Catechism, 
it's divided nicely into two sections. And this isn't exactly in your sheet here, part of it is. But the, the first, um, well, not the first question, it's the question number five. Uh, in the shorter catechism, it's question number three, same exact question. Question number five in the larger catechism is, what do the scriptures principally teach? Okay, now if I was going to give you like 10 questions uh, out of the shorter catechism, especially that you should memorize, question number three would be one of them. What do the scriptures principally teach? The answer is, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Okay, so the scriptures principally teach two things. First, what man is to believe concerning God. And second, what duty God requires of man. If you look at the larger catechism, then right after question five, there's a heading that covers the whole section from question six all the way to question 90, which brings us up right before the section we're looking at here tonight. That section then is called what man ought to believe concerning God. Now that question or that section is really analogous to what we looked at all of 2021 as we looked at the Apostles' Creed. Who is God and what has he done for us? That's pretty much what question 6 through 90 in the larger catechism covers, what we are to believe concerning God. So doctrine of God, doctrine of, of Christ, of, of man, sin, redemption, all of that stuff is what we are to believe concerning God. Now look at your sheet here. Okay, this is the next section. This is the second half of the larger catechism. Having seen what the scriptures principally teach us to believe concerning God, it follows to consider what they require as the duty of man. Okay, so first section, what are we to believe about God? Who is God? And what has he done? Second section, so what, right? What are we to do then in response to who God is and what he has done. So this booklet that we printed off for you doesn't go all the way to, to question 196, which is that whole section, 91 to 196. It's 91 to 153, which are all of the questions and answers on the law and the Ten Commandments. And I just, again, I point this out because I think this order is very important. First, we want to talk about head and heart, right? What are we supposed to know and believe about God? We don't just start with the hands, right? Talk about head, heart, and hands around here a lot. We don't want to jump right to section two. Okay, what does God require of us, right? What are we to do? And not that what are we are to do doesn't include head and heart, right? Obviously it does, believing. But we, when we think about what are, what are we to do, how are we to respond, we often think in terms of hands. So head and heart, first, we must know what we believe before we set out to do things. <clears throat> I think a helpful Scripture in the New Testament that touches on this, Galatians 2.16, says we are not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Christ, right? We don't get right with God because we do the right things or because we do a bunch of things, uh, even good things, right? We are justified by faith in Christ. Okay, let's look now at our sheet here, uh, this handout. We're going to just consider a, a few. We're not going to look at all of those questions, 91 through 101, which I asked you to read. Ahead of time, we are going to look at 91 through 93 right now. <clears throat> okay, first, what is the duty which God require, requireth of man? Question 91. The answer is, the duty which God requireth of man is obedience to his revealed will. 
Okay, so starting off, scriptures teach what what they sorry we the scriptures teach what the duty of man is, um, what duty God requires of man. And then this question is, what is that duty? It's obedience to his revealed will. Question 92, what did God first reveal unto man as the rule of his obedience? Answer, the rule of obedience revealed to Adam in the estate of innocence and to all mankind in him, besides a special command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was the moral law. Okay? So obedience to God's revealed will in the moral law, okay? Question 93, what is the moral law? Answer, the moral law is the declaration of the will of God to mankind, directing and binding everyone to personal, perfect, and perpetual conformity and obedience thereunto in the frame and disposition of the whole man, soul, and body, and in performance of all those duties of holiness and righteousness, which he oweth to God and man, promising life upon fulfillment, unfulfilling, and threatening death upon the breach of it. That was a lot here. Uh, that's a, a huge mouthful, but a couple things there in that second line, perfect or personal, perfect, and perpetual conformity, right? That means every individual is to personally obey God's law perfectly and perpetually, right? Forever, for all of our lives, we are to do that. Obviously, we know we haven't, uh, and we'll get into that. Uh, and then that last line there, uh, kind of end of the second to last line, into that last line, promising life. So there's a positive element here upon fulfilling and threatening death upon the breach of it. We'll get into that a little bit more as well. Now skip down to, or flip to the next page. So we've looked at what is the moral law. Now the question number 98, top question on the second page. Where is the moral law summarily comprehended? Answer, which in the shorter catechism, the answer is just this first line. Uh, the, the moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. The larger catechism expands on that, which were delivered by the voice of God upon, upon Mount Sinai and written by him in two tablets of stone and are recorded in the 20th chapter of Exodus, the first four commandments containing our duty to God and the other six our duty to man. And this is really important, uh, that first four to God, the, the next six uh, to man. But the moral law summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. So it doesn't say all of the moral law is, or that the Ten Commandments are all that the moral law is, right? But the, the moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. Meaning, as, we, as you keep reading after Exodus 20 and all of the rest of the laws that are going to be given, they're all related to the Ten Commandments. They all flow out of the Ten Commandments as a summary of God's moral law. Uh, question 99 is great. We're not going to dig into all that because there's a lot there. Uh, this gives just some different, the rules that are to be observed for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments. If you look down at 99.4, it says that as where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden. And where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. So where a promise is annexed, the contrary threatening is included. And where a threatening is annexed, the contrary promise is included. So we'll be getting into this a little bit more as well, this idea of both a positive and a negative aspect to each of the Ten Commandments. 
Okay, so that's, a, that's just a, a summary from the larger catechism that I think is helpful as we dive in. Now let's look to a couple places in scripture here. James already mentioned both of these. Let's turn first to Psalm 119. Or sorry, Psalm 19. <laughs> We're going to look at Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. So go to Psalm 19 first. Some tongue twisting going on here. Uh, page 456, if you have the Pew Bible. The Psalms are a great place to go to learn more about the value of the law of God, according to Scripture. And as we read through this section in Psalm 19, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11. Pay particular attention here to the different synonyms that are used for the law. Okay. And these are all of the words that are going to be used all throughout Psalm 119, where almost every single verse in Psalm 119, all 176 verses, almost every single verse uses one of these words that are law and the words that are synonymous with law. So Psalm 19, 7 through 11 says the law, and sorry, pay also atten attention to what it's saying that these things are, okay? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Turn now to Psalm 119. <clears throat> Again, just as we're turning there and considering the relationship between Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, the end of the end line there in Psalm 19, in keeping them, uh, there is great reward. So as you guys, sorry, we're actually not, we already read from Psalm 119. We're not going to read from, I didn't have a passage. I was just going to mention that we're, that Psalm, we're going to be going through Psalm 119 throughout the services. I don't have a, I don't have a reading for us, but if you, are already in Psalm 119. Just take a, you can just take a brief glance at wherever you're at and you're going to see all those words, law, statutes, rules, and this idea of keeping them there is great reward. The, the whole Psalm 119 is all about obeying God and the benefits and the blessings that come to us from obeying his law. And again, this is not works righteousness, right? This is not saying uh, this is how we earn our salvation by, by being good enough. We can't be good enough, but we are still called as God's people to love his law, to obey his law, and to delight in him. Turn now to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at how Jesus talks about the law. So again, this is very important because as we think about the Ten Commandments, it's easy to think like, oh, that was just something that was given to the people of Israel, right? That there's just all these Old Testament laws that don't apply to us anymore today, and they're just really old and, and ancient, right? Um, well, Jesus would, would say otherwise. This comes from the Sermon on the Mount, which really is a kind of an unpacking of the Ten Commandments. Matthew chapter 5, 
verses 17 through 20. Page 810, if you have the Pew Bible. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The law was very important to Jesus as he talked about it a lot. Uh, you can turn to Matthew chapter 22. As we see Jesus here summarizing the law, very familiar passage. <clears throat> Matthew 22, starting verse 34, 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Again, this is a great summary of the Ten Commandments here, right? The first, when Jesus says the first commandment here, this is those things that are toward God. In the Ten Commandments, it's the first four commandments that are directed towards God. The second six are directed towards God. Our neighbors, right? So we shall love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. That's the first commandment. The second, love your neighbor as yourself. So that first, we call it the first table of the law and the second table of the law. So those are summarized here by Jesus. Jesus does not undermine the law of God. He does not undermine the Ten Commandments. He says that he came to fulfill it, right? So there's a very high value on the law of God. And as we keep reading in the New Testament, you can see Paul in Romans and in Galatians talks a lot about the law of God. There's a lot in the book of James about the law of God. Um, so something that if you've read through the New Testament, it's going to be a very familiar topic. And um, that is so that's kind of just a very brief summary of kind of how the scriptures cover and, and talk about the law of God. Now I kind of want to get into a little bit more of um, some categories uh, that are helpful for us to understand as we go through the Ten Commandments. So these aren't things that are directly in Scripture, but these are kind of categories that we need to understand, as, especially as we go through, as we spend time. Next month, we'll be looking at the First Commandment, and these are the kinds of things that we'll be kind of unpacking as we look at each commandment. So each commandment has both a narrow and a broad application. There is a narrow and a broad application. The narrow application is what the commandment specifically forbids or commands. 
For example, the fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother. That is the narrow application. That is, ex that is exactly what the commandment tells us. Honor your father and mother. Now, broadly speaking, what other circumstances might this apply to? Well, we can think about just the, the whole idea of authority in our lives, right? We're told directly as a child to obey the people who are in authority over us as we're children. Broadly, we can think about, well, that probably, those principles probably apply more broadly in the world, right? With your boss who's, who's in authority over you, with the governing authorities who are over you. Um, so there is both that narrow application and then a broad application. Second category is positive and negative applications. Now, of the Ten Commandments, eight of the ten are stated negatively, starting with the words, you shall not. Two of them are stated positively. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother. Those are stated positively. But all of them really have both a positive and a negative application. Uh, we are told what we should do or what we should not do. But even in the ones that are stated negatively, we can also learn what we should positively do, right? So the seventh commandment forbids adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Well, positively, and some of these obviously are, can have negative things that we also shouldn't do, but positively, we should say, well, what does that say? What are we to positively do in terms of sexual purity according to what God commands in the rest of scripture, right? There are all kinds of commands in the rest of scripture that have to do with sexual purity that we can look at positively, right? That aren't we're not just taking the negative, you shall not commit adultery, but it's like on the flip side of that, here's, here's what you should do. Okay, so that's just one example. And again, each one of those will have a positive and a negative. So narrow and broad, positive and negative. The next thing that we will talk about that'll be really helpful is the three uses of the law. And there are three images uh, that are helpful if you want to think about this for the three uses of the law. The first use of the law, we can think about a mirror. So the law serves as a mirror. It's something that we hold up. It shows us our unrighteousness. It shows us our sin, and it should drive us to dependence upon God, right? We should see the law. We should see it ourselves in light of it and say, I don't match up to God's perfect law. I need a savior, right? That's what, how the law acts as a mirror. It drives us to Christ. The second thing is it serves as a curb or a bridle. Uh, you think about a curb, just like curbs in the side of the road, keeping you in or a bridle on a horse. Uh, those things keep, these are keeping those who wish to do evil in check through fear of the punishments associated with the law. So a lot of times we think about these in a more civil sense, right? Like that's why we have speed limits and we have other things. Those things act as a curb to keep people in check and um, to remind us as, as well of the fact that we need laws, right? If we don't have any laws, we're just going to do whatever we want. So there are curbs that are in place um, to keep us, um, to, to obey God's law. So the, those first two, the mirror and the curb, those things are used negatively. They have a more of a negative aspect, it's, right? You don't, you don't want to go and look in that mirror because you know what you're going to see, right? You're going to see your sinfulness and you're going to, you're going to react in your, in your sinful flesh. You're going to react negatively to that. 
when you see that speed limit sign, when you're late for a meeting, you're like, ah, like stop, stop making me obey these rules, right? But they're, they're there for a reason. They're there for our good. Now, the third sense of the law is more of a positive sense. And this is that it serves as a map or as a rule of life for believers to follow, instructing them in the will of God, which they seek to follow. So this is, as we think about the Ten Commandments, as we think about the law of God being used positively in our lives, this is when we read these things, we should say, yes, I want to do these things. I want to obey God. This is how I can live the Christian life in a way that pleases God. All right, so now I'm going to break out the, the beast here. Um, so one of our professors at RTS, John Frame, wrote this book, the, Doc- the Doctrine of the Christian Life, a thousand pages. And yes, we had to read the whole thing for our pastoral and social ethics class. You're in the class right now, or you just finished it. Um, so this is a, a mammoth book uh, on Christian ethics. 465 pages of this thousand pages is just on the Ten Commandments, okay? So when I say it's overwhelming to get up here and give an overview of the Ten Commandments, like, and this is just one book, right? This is one author writing about the Ten Commandments. But the opening line of the book I want to read to you because I think it is very fitting. Here's what John Frame says, page three of one thousand actually i think it's actually 999 pages but yeah page three the christian life is a rich journey and it is not easy to describe without any pretense of comprehensiveness which is funny in a thousand page book without any pretense of comprehensiveness i try to describe in this volume i tried i tried to describe it that is the christian life in this volume as living under god's law in God's world, in the presence of God himself, okay? So the Christian life, which he describes as a rich journey, is summarized as living under God's law, in God's world, in the presence of God himself. As we seek to do that, I want us to consider the preface to the Ten Commandments. You can turn back to Exodus chapter 20. How are we to live under God's law, in God's world, in the presence of God himself? I think the preface to the Ten Commandments helps us here. Verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, there are two key things here. The first key is God's name. Who is he? I am the Lord your God. Notice that L-O-R-D, all caps. This is God's divine name, his covenant name as he revealed himself earlier in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses in the burning bush. Moses asked, who should I, when I, when I go and, and tell the people who sent, who sent me to you, what shall I say? And he said, I am who I am, right? I am 
who I am sent me. That is God's divine name. So he reminds them here in this preface, as he revealed himself to Moses earlier in Exodus chapter three, he reminds them who he is. So the whole 10 commandments starts off with this reminder. I am the Lord, your God, right? As we think about living under God's law in God's world, in the presence of God himself, we need this reminder. He is the Lord, our God. Second thing, so God's name, second, God's action. What has he done? I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So just prior to this, chronologically, just prior to this, we see the plagues, right? We see the deliverance out of Egypt, the exodus where the people cross the Red Sea. They come out on the other side. The Egyptian army is drowned. And God rescues his people. He brought them out of the land of Egypt. He brought them out of the house of slavery. Something that is very important for us to remember here, which sounds kind of obvious, but first time I heard this in one of my seminary classes, I was like, like mind totally blown. We, we have to always remember that Exodus 19 comes before Exodus 20, okay? And you might say, duh, right? And I don't just mean that numerically or chronologically. Exodus 19 comes before Exodus 20, meaning when God comes to the people on Mount Sinai and reminds them who he is and what he has done for them, that comes before the law is given, right? It's not this commandment first. If you do all of these things, then you will be my people. No, God says, you are my people who I rescued out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. By my mighty hand, you are my people. I've done this. Therefore, obey me, right? It doesn't get it reversed. Exodus 19 comes before Exodus 20. And this is what John Frame says. He says, God's gracious deliverance precedes the demands of the law. And it forms the basis of Israel's obedience. Grace precedes and motivates work. Okay? This is a very important principle as we think about the Ten Commandments. We have to think about Exodus 19 and Exodus 20 in right relationship with each other. God's deliverance precedes the demands of the law. Grace precedes and motivates work. Frame goes on. This relationship between grace and works is substantially the same as that in the new covenant. There is a continuity between the way God deals with his people in the old covenant and the way he deals with us in the new covenant. Okay, a lot of, and this is where there's going to be some maybe difference between how reformed Christians teach about God's law and how some other groups of Christians that who we love and we respect, we're not trying to like bash them, but we say, For us, we see a very distinct connection between the relationship between Exodus 19 and 20 and then what we see in the New Testament as motivation for obeying God, right? He delivered his people out of Egypt and he says, obey me because I delivered you. When we get to the cross, it's the same thing, right? Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments because I died for you. Not because you're trying to earn your salvation. The way to salvation in the Old Testament wasn't, Work really hard to keep the Ten Commandments. It was God saved you out of Egypt when you were 
slaves, right? And you, when, when you were trapped and about to be slaughtered by the Egyptian army, he opened up the Red Sea so you could walk across. That was all grace. They didn't earn any of that, right? So that we have to understand that as we, even as we go through the Ten Commandments this year, we have to understand that relationship. Grace precedes and motivates work. Hugely important. So this is why the Ten Commandments matter. They're not only a summary of God's perfect moral law, but it is also a guide for us for the rich journey of the Christian life, as Frame describes, again, as living under God's law, in God's world, in the presence of God himself. That's what we are to do as Christians. So as we seek to be a people who glorify God, who enjoy him forever, we need a love for and an embrace of and a delight in God's perfect law. That must be something that we have. That must be something that defines us as the people of God. And by God's grace, we can do that. Let us pray. God, we are reminded of our need for you. We're reminded of our need for your grace. God, just as you saved the people out of Egypt by your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, God, it was your grace that preceded their works. It was your grace that preceded the demands of the law. It's your grace that precedes and motivates our work for you. God, may we be a people who delight in your law, who delight to keep your law, who delight to, to obey you and show to the world around us that we are a people who are guided by your law, guided by your word. May it never be something that we use for our own advantage. That we use to try to show that we are more righteous than those around us. It is not any righteousness that we have in and of ourselves but it is the righteousness of Christ who perfectly fulfilled and obeyed your law on our behalf, who lived and died for us so that we might walk according to your ways. God, fill us with your spirit. By your grace, enable us to love you, to obey you, to keep your commandments because they are perfect and they are sure, they are right, they are good. God, we desire to love you and to live for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.